Bibles with me to today's sermon text, which is the book of Galatians, chapter 3, verses 1 to 14. Hear now the word of the Lord. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It is before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Now let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Now are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith. Just as Abraham believed God and was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all nations be blessed. And so then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now, it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Let us pray. May the grace of your gospel, O Lord, come to us not in mere human word only, but in power, in, in the Holy Spirit, and with all assurance, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. <clears throat> so, given our prayers and hymns thus far, I imagine that each of us, by now, even the little ones, have a good working understanding of the nature of grace of God. It fills my heart with joy every Sunday, to see so many little children here being catechized and sitting under the teaching that's faithful to Scripture and to confession of the Reformed faith. It's, it's a picture of grace and of God's covenant faithfulness, this vitality here, this visible fruit of biblical faithfulness, heads about with confessionalism, faithful confessionalism. It's why we settled here, my wife and I, in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. The confessions of faith. They help us as guardrails, as frameworks, as teaching aids for many reasons. But with faithful confessionalism also comes a sense of history, a pedigree, an idea of who we come from. Now, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church and its confession, they provide that healthy feeling of connectedness to our time and our place, helping us to orient ourselves, not as lone actors, but as members of a household of households, a covenant people, each of us, a new link in a great 
an ancient chain, each of us stationed at a particular God-ordained, appointed place in time and history. This tangible rootedness, something I think our postmodern digital society today, we, we desperately lack that. It's good, brothers and sisters, to remember the mighty works of the Lord, to remember the story, to recall where we all came from as the Lord's covenant people from the beginning even until now. We are all, by virtue of our possession thereof, stewards of a great gift, heralds of a better word, the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, our focus this hour is the doctrine of God's free and gracious justification defended in this epistle by Paul. It is what Calvin has called the hinge of the Reformation. The Reformers, with great, with great conviction and often at great personal risk, looked to the example of Paul in his writings and in the epistle to Galatians specifically. To the Reformers, the situation in Paul's letters was analogous to their own. From Paul, they drew inspiration for standing up for a core truth of the gospel. With Paul as their example in today's epistle, the Reformers were encouraged and they were strengthened to stand against powerful, well-positioned authorities. With Paul, in faith, they resolved to themselves to hold fast to the truth of the gospel, come what may. Now, this doctrine of justification by faith, recovered in the Reformation and as preached and defended here tonight by Paul, is the great gospel equalizer, humbling all men equally as undeserving sinners before the cross. All men fall short of the glory of God, both by nature and by actual sins committed because of the sinful inclination of our hearts. No one, says Paul, will be justified in the eyes of God under the law. Now God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. He is holy, and he must be regarded as such. Wickedness, evil, sin is driven from and flees from his presence. Sin is a barrier, it is a wall. It creates what we, in a creaturely way, interpret as distance to God. There is no other approach to God, brothers and sisters. There's no restoration to communion except by that precious blood of Christ. Now, justification, this legal standing by the blood of Christ, and this is our status of favor as believers. Now, confessionally defined, doctrine of justification, we are reckoned, we are accounted as righteousness, as Abraham in the eyes of God. And this is stated in Shorter Catechism 33, that justification is an act of God's free grace, where he pardons all sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight, only through the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. Now, for Westminster Divines placed the doctrine of justification after chapter 10, on effectual calling, and this is because justification is one of the many saving graces that flows from our effectual calling. The doctrine of justification is primary too, and inseparable from the gospel, and it is listed first in this section of the confession for this reason. And as Calvin termed it, justification is the chief article of the Christian religion. The Galatians, at the time of Paul's writing, were in Christ. The light of the gospel in the Galatian churches in Paul's absence, they were under attack. False teachers, Judaizers, had come in teaching essentially a return to the law. 
Now the church was beginning to fracture, but in the Lord's grace, he gave them Paul. Paul's standing up for the Galatian churches is documented in the book of Acts. There are there is some uncertainty on the question of the precise date, and that's intertwined with the exact destination of the letter. The Galatians were both. They were a people group in northern Galatia, and that's where Galatia got its name from, the Galatians. It migrated there. Um, they were interestingly a Celtic people group. Um, so Paul had interaction with both and realistically it's easier to reconcile with the content of the book of Acts and earlier dates for the church uh, for the epistle of Galatia. Now what helps this case is that there is no appeal from Paul in the book of Galatians to the council of Jerusalem now. If you look at Acts 15, if you recall there, the Council of Jerusalem was held to decide whether or what would be required of the Gentiles coming into the faith. Now, this council resulted in a letter from the assembly in Jerusalem to the churches, stating that it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us, the council, to lay on you, the church, no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed from idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, the letter said, you will be well. Now, it's a deafening argument from silence, but in the appeals to the council, and this statement from it, Luke made Paul's task in defending the gospel against the false teachers much, much easier. Now, this leans, in my view, toward an earlier dating of the letter. Now, this date, actual, actual scholars settle on the date of A.D. 49. This isn't very long after A.D. 33, after the ascension, 16 years. So all this is to say that error is a constant threat to the church. The church, practically from its inauguration until now, and until the Lord returns in glory, has been and will be locked in combat with error and the forces of darkness that propagate it. Now, we admire Paul. We think of the days of the early church as pure and idyllic, but let this be a lesson to us today, right? In the time that it takes for one to come to some age of accountability, error had broken the line. From this, we see that it does not take long for error to take root. As tares among the wheat, they will grow together until the harvest. Now, this calls for prayerful and holy discernment and a tender and rightly applied vigilance according to the word of God. Paul, toward the end of the epistle, he exhorts us to stand fast in the liberty that Christ has made us free and not submit again to a yoke of bondage. And he tells us that we have been called to this liberty not to serve the flesh, but to serve one another, bearing one another's burdens, seeking to gently restore the weak. Now, keep in mind, the best of men among us are men at best, and that is a sign of true strength to bear patiently with the infirmities of the weaker brothers and sisters. Correction is not to call out and strike down, as Paul demonstrates with his demeanor in the letter, but to scoop up, to gather, and to return the wayward to the fold. Let's move on. Now, let's look at an overview of the, of the epistle leading up to chapter 3. In chapter 1, verse 6, Paul says, I marvel that you are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another, but there are some that trouble you and pervert the gospel of Christ. This is front-loaded in the epistle. 
sort of the thesis statement, if you will, as if to say, if you take away nothing else from me in this letter, if you take away nothing else this evening, remember this as foremost, there is no other gospel. There is no other name by which men may be saved but Jesus Christ, who, as Paul said in verse 3, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father. Now this, this is the gospel, brothers and sisters. There are no alternatives to this only corruption of it. And Paul reiterates the message of free grace. A man is justified in the eyes of God, not by his own works, but by his apprehension and faith of the finished and all-sufficient work of Christ gifted to him out of the pure loving kindness of the Father. Over and over again through the epistle, this is stated. Turn with me next. Let's look at chapter 2, 15 to 16. Three times in verse 15 and 16. Paul sets justification by faith in opposition to justification by works of the law. Paul says, verse 16, going to that, a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ. And he goes on to say, in the same place, so we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ. And again, a third time, for by the works of law shall no flesh be justified. Three times it is said to be by faith, by believing in Christ, and three times the works of the law are excluded as a means of justification. This contrast in this one verse is set to the uttermost with this threefold repetition. There can be no confusion, brothers and sisters. He's pointing us to the fact here, Paul is, that only on the account of the work of Jesus Christ, the demands of the law of God are met, and by faith in him, believers are granted the irrevocable status of being righteous in the sight of God. Justification, your right standing before God, Paul says here, again, is by faith alone. The false teachers, they perverted the true gospel. They, they did this by teaching, in essence, a return to the law, contrary to what Paul is teaching. This offer of free grace, this free to the uttermost. They returned to the law that they required circumcision in addition to faith, or even for uncircumcised Gentiles. They attempted to convert Gentile Galatians to Judaism with all its externalities, its rituals, its all of this. And it's all from external pressure from nationalistic Jewish groups at the time. And, and to an extent, they were very successful. The situation, it was, it was really tempting to the Galatians. And Paul sees this temptation and says in verse 10, one ten, he says, For do I now persuade men or God, or do I seek to please men? False teachers were pleasers of men, the Jewish groups supporting them. The pressure to compromise for the Galatians was immense. Each conversion to this errant sect within it was a celebrated thing by the Jewish establishment. The compromise on the gospel was out of the question for Paul, for he says, if I yet please men, I should not be a servant of Christ. This is a sentiment one we need to take to heart, especially as current cultural trends continue. There is no compromise on the truth of the gospel with Paul, nor should there be with us. The, the risk is dire. In, in chapter 5, verse 4, Paul says to those relying on works, you are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace, severed, cut off. Now Paul uses the imagery of circumcision, but he is talking about faith. 
the circumcision, the covenant sign of those he has chosen, is a matter of the heart. And this is set in stark contrast to the argument from the Judaizing party, arguing for outward and physical circumcision. Man in his natural fallen state, physically circumcised or not, is at enmity with God. The relationship in man's heart is by nature adversarial. Romans 8, 7 tells us, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. John 6, 65, Jesus says, that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. In 1 Corinthians 2, 14, Paul explains, the, nature, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. This gospel, this gospel, it is foolishness, it is foolishness for those perishing, but for us, it is the power of God. Those little flock in Galatia, having tasted this heavenly gift, having received the Spirit, having heard the good word from Paul's own mouth, in faith, were, they were young. The Galatian church was in its youth, and it, in Paul's absence, it was, it was being ravaged by circumcision. It would be a mistake to just say Judaizing and leave it at that. Circumcision, in addition to faith, and justification is no small error. It demonstrates a fundamental misapprehension of the content of the gospel. It obliterates the free grace offered to us in Christ Jesus. To add anything beyond the offer of free grace in the gospel, for right standing, a clear conscience before God, is to trample underfoot the cross and the perfect righteousness imputed to us in Christ. Now, some have been swept away by this, carried away as if by wolves. We come to verse 3 of today's text, or I'm sorry, chapter 3. In verses 1 to 5, Paul gives us correction to this folly, the spiritual folly of the Galatians. Paul, first, he drives home the point that the one at work in them is the Spirit of the Lord and that this is by faith. And he does this through a series of four questions, Galatians 3, 1 to 5. He says, let me ask you only this. Did you receive the spirit of works of the law or by hearing by, with faith? He says, are you so foolish? Having begun by the spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? You suffered so many things in vain. If indeed it was in vain. And he says, does he who supplies the spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? And these are questions intended to remind them of their own experiences. That the spirit of God had earlier invaded their lives by grace at the sound of the Lord's speech. Any attempt to add legalistic components to the gospel is, is in error. And it's demonstrated here by Paul by the questions he asks. The questions they answer to themselves as he asks tells them the truth. God both initiates according to Paul and brings to completion our salvation. The Galatians, they knew the Holy Spirit by experience. In their calling and in their conversions and Miracles and in signs among them, they knew the Spirit to be operative by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. And Paul's giving them a scolding here, but it's one that teaches. Paul has great love. He is a spiritual father in the faith, in a sense, to the Galatians. And he, he concludes his questioning then with reference to Abraham. He cites in verse 6 the blessing promised to the nations. Just as Abraham believed God, he says, and it was counted to him as righteousness. From Genesis 15, 6, 
with reference to the promised ingathering of the Gentiles, the nations that would come responding in like manner to Abraham, to the promises of God by faith. In verse 7 he says, Know then that it's those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And he's showing, in verse 8, that this, this is a promise of the gospel in advance, all the way back then. But this is an insurmountable overture for the false teachers, for their arguments. The final nail, you can, it's done. The Judaizing party is done as far as argumentation goes. The weightiness of the implication for the Galatians is made clear here when we understand the false teachers are those who often reference themselves, they often reference Abraham as the proto-law keeper. And to them, to be a true Jew was to be a son of Abraham. Genealogies, they're important, and they prided themselves on their heritage, their lineage. But the false teachers here, they miss the mark by its outsized place in the scheme by mingling that glorious lineage, a gift itself of God, with outward works of law, adherence to tradition, externality, as a way of earning God's merit. It's an image of Jacob's bargaining with God. And they considered themselves to be the rightful inheritors of the religious birthright, having knowledge and understanding of the law. Paul, he doesn't have any of it. As he argues here against the assumption that children of Abraham are those who are naturally descended from Abraham, those outwardly circumcised, and those who in vain try and keep the law for justification. Abraham's sons, says Paul, are those who believe the gospel. So while the Judaizers, they relied on their birthright and their traditional heritage and the like, Jesus, according to Paul, established a new birthright, one from above, where by grace we are reckoned as righteous through faith and inherit the kingdom, kingdom of God. <clears throat> and the irony Paul is driving at here is to merge us and consider that Jesus is, he is rejected. He is the rejected stone. This is not a carnal lineage, this is a, a spiritual relation, spiritual lineage. Adding to the gospel is the rejection of grace and it's the rejection of the cross. But now Jesus is the cornerstone of the church. And those called by God, those believers, the faithful, are living stones being built up into a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices to God. Now the church, <clears throat> the household of households, temple built not with living hands, or not with hands, Living stones, composed of believers from every nation and background, and we gather now and we praise him. These lifeless, insignificant stones in a great twist are the ones now through whom God's praise eternally resounds. The weight of Paul's argument is crushing to the false teacher. And God's favor is not because of works, not lineage, not birthright, but because of him who calls. Paul draws this argument out more clearly here with something Interesting, he says in Romans 9. And I'll just, I'll briefly read this for you. It's Romans 9, 6 to 16. He teaches here on this very idea that not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named, Paul says. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise counted as offspring. 
For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born, had done nothing out of good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, he was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Look at verse 12. What is Paul talking about? The elder will serve the younger. An inheritance, not in Adam, but in Christ. Believers, we are born by the Spirit, by faith from above, as the Lord teaches in the Gospels. Only those born again by the Holy Spirit from above, those who in eternity past, in God's sovereign decree of election, were purposed to be redeemed in Christ, are those who are the children of God. This is accomplished and applied by God alone in his own great redemptive, creative, triune work. He has designed it such that those only who are in Christ are the children of God. God chooses whom he wills. When he sovereignly chose the younger Abel over Cain, the younger Isaac over Ishmael, the younger Jacob over Esau, the younger Joseph over his brothers, the younger Ephraim over Manasseh, the younger David over his brothers, the younger Solomon over Adonijah. In Isaiah 53, he prophesied, and the Spirit spoke about God's chosen servant, in and by whom we are justified. He was despised, he was rejected by others, he was a man of suffering and acquainted with infirmity. He was one from whom others hide their faces. He was despised and we held him of no account. But God, but God allotted this whole, this lowly suffering servant a portion with the great, this lowly Jesus, born in a stable, raised in Nazareth, poor and despised as God's suffering servant. But God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name. And in the end, when he returns to judge the living and the dead, there will only be two groups of people. Those in Christ, those who will inherit life and the kingdom in righteousness, and those without the wicked, those bound by sin, as though inseparably wed to it, will together with it be cast permanently, eternally into the outer darkness of hell. There is no other way. There is no other way of salvation from sin and death and the curse of the law. And I am asking you, little brother, this evening, if you are not in Christ, I implore you, today is the day. And I am asking you to seek the Lord while he's found, call upon him while he's near, forsake wickedness, and let the unrighteous turn from their thoughts. Turn to the Lord that he may have compassion, because he will abundantly pardon. And I am asking that if you do not know him, that you repent this evening and that you believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now in repentance, we have to first understand that in repentance we are truly aware of our sinfulness. We must have both an intellectual knowledge of sin, but secondly, we have to have a visceral real apprehension of its heinousness before a holy God. And third, there must be a turning. As sinners, 
in repentance, we must stop from the path we're on, turn from sin, and turn to Christ, who pursues us all the while. A returning prodigal. Turn to the Father for mercy, believing that there is mercy in him. Believing that it is true that he is the great physician, that he can make you whole if only you can get close enough to touch the hem of his garment. Brothers and sisters, I'm asking you to go to him if you don't know him. Take your imperfections, your shortcomings, your warts and all. The cross is an image of God's reconciling love, his reconciliation in Christ his compassion for his own. He will bear your sin, but you have to let go of self-reliance and give it to him. It is the sinner alone who came to save, and that is our only qualification, not the self-righteous. And we have to repent, believe the good news, you have taken your sin, you are forgiven. Christ, Paul says, has redeemed us from the curse of the law. In your justification by faith, you are not a pardoned prisoner. He has freed you from the imprisonment of sin and death. You are an adopted child of God. A pardoned prisoner is still guilty of the charge. He still has a record. Christ has taken your sin. The account of it is erased forever. And in return, he's given you his righteousness before the eyes of the Father. He has restored you, our, our Goel, our kinsman and redeemer, restored us in justification, our great shepherd, our physician himself. He has come, our rescuer, found us in the darkness and ruin, and he leads us by the hand as those who lead you to the, by the hand before the Father to the assembly of the hosts standing by, waiting in your justification. The scales are brought out into the court. The angel approaches you and asks you a report. The angel waits expectantly because he's got nothing to offer but dust and ash. And the still, peaceful breeze of heaven blows it away, and not even a visible speck actually lands in the angel's golden vessel. And at the last second, as the pen is dipped, High like Abraham's blade, the scribe who winces in anticipation of the pronouncement of judgment of guilt and of striking the names in the ledger. But at last, the last moment, the shepherd himself steps forward as though to say, Do not harm him. This one is mine. I have chosen him. I myself have paid the price on the mount hanging upon the cross. I have borne his sin myself, and I will make him whole. And with these words, he touches his scepter to the scales, and the weight of your sin vanish. We can imagine in this, the second he does this, the scales, they clatter, and they clunk instantly on the floor, and the bowl rolls, revealing nothing in it but the Lord's overflowing grace. And as Calvin said, to gain Christ's righteousness, we must first Abandon our own. This finished salvation is not because of anything you have done, but because of the great love and sacrifice of the shepherd. Your sins are forgiven. Your guilt is washed away. Your infirmities purpose to be made whole, and you are declared righteous, justified before the Father to the glory of God.
And at this sound, this righteous reckoning of grace, another has been found, brought into the fold, and you are welcomed into the family of God, embraced by the Father, granted the gift of eternal life and communion with him. The thrust from Paul's argument this evening is that faith alone can embrace the fullness of the grace of God. Faith is the instrument, the channel, the gift, worked by the Spirit, dwelling within you. This is grounded not on works, not on anything we do, but on the obedient satisfaction of Christ. This is free for us, but it was not free for Christ. He paid for it dearly. In his humiliation, in his propitiation, in his coming down from the heavens, from rending the heavens in the first place to come down, from setting aside his glory in a fast of his own choosing to set free the captive, loose the bands of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens of the law, to let the oppressed go free, he who gives bread to the hungry, who tends the poor and lowly, the outcast, it is he who covers our nakedness in righteousness, it is he who reveals by his spirit within us our Emmanuel. And he has purchased our forgiveness. And this communion, this sweet communion we enjoy this evening, is purchased with his precious, holy blood. Because there is no other price by which God's righteousness, by which God's righteous judgment could be satisfied. Sin spilt is such that it can only be washed in this sacrament. Free to us, given, a gift, love, stooping down. All of this is grace, apprehended by faith, not faith in doctrine, not faith in commands or in our performing of our Christian duties, but in his person and in his promises to us, his covenant people, in the one who rose in victory, breaking the curse of sin and death. It is as the hymn we will sing shortly says, for the justified, for I am his and he is mine, bought with the precious blood. We pray, Heavenly Father, that the truths of Galatians would take deep root within our hearts and help us to grasp the profound reality of your grace received in Christ alone. Remind us daily that our righteousness and acceptance before you are solely based on Christ's finished work on the cross. May the message of Galatians inspire us with a vibrant faith, a sincere desire to live in obedience to your work. Father, we ask that you would help us to Stand firm under pressure to compromise on the truth of the gospel. We ask that you empower us to walk in the freedom that comes from knowing and experiencing your grace. May our lives bear witness to the transforming power of your gospel. In Jesus' name.